0: Well, I don't know about you, but one of the most frustrating things I can find in life is when you lose something. I mean, anybody else ever feel that way? Like, is there anything more frustrating in just the daily life than losing something? You know, I'm like super OCD. I never leave the house without knowing where my stuff is. Now, that's not the same for all of us. I think we realize some of you might don't look at them, but you might be married to someone who is not, I see some of you looking, don't. you might be married to someone who maybe not the best at not losing things. You know, when I met Courtney, I hit the jackpot. You know, when I met her, she was perfect. She, she's beautiful. She's smart. She's funny. She loves the Jason Bourne movies. She, she listens to Breaking Benjamin. I'm like, are you serious? Those two combos together? This is amazing. And we got married. And it was beautiful. And then shortly after we got married and moved in together, I started to realize that Courtney was sometimes not great at not losing things. And uh, I, she's got, I got permission, right? So, to, to, so you guys don't have to look at her. But um, one time we go to Buena Vista. We got friends from Texas in town. We're going to go to Cottonwood Pass. It's going to be beautiful. And Courtney decides she wants to go get a coffee at the Brown Dog Coffee Cup. So I give her my debit card and she goes to Brown Dog and she gets her coffee. We meet back up. We go to the top of the pass. We have a great time. And a little later, I'm going to go buy something, and I'm like, hey, babe, can I get my debit card back? And she's like, ooh, uh, yeah, what color was it again, you know? And so we, we get home, and I have to cancel the card, and I call Brown Dog later, and they call me back, and they said, hey, we found your debit card. I was like, where was it? Well, it was in the women's bathroom, on the counter. <laughs> I guess it was just too big for her jeans. I don't know, right? <laughs> you know, but, but nonetheless, all is good, free coffee's on me, it sounded like. But some of us are just really not the best at misplacing things. But then there are some of us who are just great at finding things. So you guys ever been to the beach and you see the guys with the little, you know, magnetic uh, finders, right? Like, you know, also you often wonder, like, do they ever find anything? Or is this just a fun thing for, you know, retired dudes to do? Well, in 1977, uh, there was a guy who was patrolling the beach with one of these wands, and he found a golden nugget, like 4.9 carats of gold. It's called the Mojave Nugget. You can look it up. It's worth almost $300,000. So you can find some things that if, if you go looking at the right places. You also got guys like Dog the Bounty Hunter and Columbo, Patrick Jane, you know, all the great detective movies like, and shows. These guys are great at finding things. Sometimes we're not the best at it, but there are people who are really good at it. But you know who's the best at finding things? It's Jesus. You know, in the book of Luke, there's this really cool exchange Jesus has. He's walking through Jericho, and Jericho is on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking through Jericho, and the crowds, anytime Jesus went anywhere, the crowds just just poured out in the streets because they wanted to see the miracles. They wanted to hear the teaching. They wanted to touch his robe. And so he's pressed in by this crowd of people, and he's trying to get down the road. And there's a, there's, a, there's a dude named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, you, if you guys are familiar with Zacchaeus, he's not very tall. I know what that's like, right? You got to kind of climb up on stuff or tippy-toe at concerts. Well, Zacchaeus decides to climb a tree so he can get up over the crowds and he can see Jesus because he's heard so much about Jesus. And so Jesus sees Zacchaeus in his tree. And we don't know that they ever met before, but Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I need you to come down because I'm having dinner at your place tonight, which was a shock to Zacchaeus. But he said, that's fine. And so he goes to Zacchaeus' house and they're, they're having dinner. And, but it was funny because the religious people on the day, the leaders, they hated Zacchaeus because he was a tax collector. So here's Jesus having dinner with his tax collector. And they, they, they grumbled. They said, Jesus, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what, what, what are you doing here? And so Jesus turns to them and he says something that I think would be the motto of his ministry. This would be his modus operandi, his MO. Here's what he said. Look at Luke 19.10. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save. What, Forefront? The lost. He he said, I I came to seek and and to save the lost. So if you say, what is Jesus' MO? What was his motto? What was his mission? This would be it, to, to seek and save the lost. But people didn't get it. The people that followed Jesus didn't understand it. The people that were the religious leaders in Israel at the time, they didn't understand. He was a rabbi. He was supposed to be better than this. But Jesus was the kind of person that could find what was lost, and this was his mission. And today in Luke chapter 15, we're going to end our parable series by looking at two of three parables that Jesus gives us in Luke 15 that talks about how Jesus goes about seeking and saving the lost. So grab your Bibles, flip there if you're not there yet. Luke chapter 15. You know, we've been in this parable series now for a couple months, and we've looked at some of the famous ones like the Good Samaritan, the Wedding Banquet. We looked at some really hard ones like the Rich Fool last week. We're not going to talk about the prodigal son because we've done that before, but these are the two parables that lead up to the prodigal son. And so they build on each other. Um, and, and so in, in Luke 15, we find Jesus at this point where he, he's, he's done so much. He's on his way to Jerusalem now. And he's got huge crowds following him. And he's really in a heavy teaching mode. And, and we get to Luke 15, we find that he's been taking a lot of heat from the religious leaders. So, so notice how Luke 15 verse 1 starts. It's similar to when he was hanging out with Zacchaeus, actually. It says this, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's this uh, posture that's that going on around the religious leaders, and they're looking down on Jesus, saying, This guy, something's wrong with this guy. He's supposed to be a rabbi. He's supposed to be teaching people the rules and the laws of God, but yet... He's hanging out with tax collectors and he's hanging out with sinners and he's actually eating with them. So, if you take yourself back to first century uh, Jewish culture, there were really two classes of people that were viewed as the worst types of people. I mean, every society has people they look down on, and, 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 and in the culture of first century Jerusalem, or, or Jewish culture, it was tax collectors and sinners. And we've talked about tax collectors before. If you've been with us, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Matthew, also known as Levi, one of the disciples, of a tax collector. And the tax collectors were looked at as, as really the scum of culture. Because what would happen was, and many of you know this, Rome, rather than collecting taxes themselves, would use, it was really a brilliant tactic, they would use the native people of that land. And what they would do is they would auction it off for bid. And so if you were a wealthy person or came from a wealthy family, you had some money, you could oh. bid on a piece of land. Uh, you know, so you could bid on part of Israel. This is what Zacchaeus would have done. He would have bid on this and say it was a million dollars. He pays a million dollars to Rome. And then and, and then he what he can do is he can really charge over and above what Rome would charge for tax. And so these tax collectors were taxing their people more than the tax would be. And so they were wealthy. They were referred to as publicans. And they were very wealthy. And they were hated by culture. And so that was part of the people that Jesus was hanging out with. And now there's another group of people that are referred to often you'll see in the Bible as just sinners. And the idea of a sinner in the eyes of religious leaders in that day would be you're someone who doesn't go to synagogue, who doesn't follow the law, who doesn't keep the rules, and so you're kind of an outcast in society. So a sinner would be someone who maybe was a beggar or they were in prostitution or they were a drunkard. Or, or they were homeless, or, or, or they were a Chiefs fan, right? Like they were just the, the, the scum that people didn't want to see and didn't want to deal with, right? And so Jesus is taking a lot of flack. These are because these are people who are far away from God. These are people who weren't plugging in and listening to the religious leaders' teaching. So these are people who are far off from God, but yet they were bring, bring, being drawn near to Jesus. And while the religious leaders' folk pointed at them and said, Jesus, why can you spend time with these people? Jesus says, I welcome them in. Like, I I am here to to welcome them in. Jesus would invite them to dinner. He would heal them. He would spend time with them. And and if you look back here at verse 2, you'll notice one of their main complaints again was that Jesus was eating with his tax collectors and he's sinners. Did did you know, when you think back, think about the people you eat dinner with, the people you invite over to your home to eat with. The people you eat dinner with have a lot to say about you. Did you ever think about it like this before? Like, I want you just to, this week, notice where you eat and who you eat with. It actually has a lot to say about you. See, in first century Jerusalem, they didn't have hand sanitizer, right? They didn't have wet wipes. They didn't have the little squirt bottles on the table right? When I was in Israel a few weeks ago, it's, it's the same thing. They bring out family-style meals of hummus, vegetables, tahini sauce, and you just dip in. You're getting all your nail fungus all in that thing, right? It's gross, but it's there, right? Better hope it's got some antibacterial microbes in there, right, to just kind of clean all that off because you're getting in it with the people next to you. We don't do that here, do we? We're like, sir, can I have an extra salsa for me, please? I don't want to double dip with them, right? Like, don't we do that? Hey, can we get a big thing of queso and we'll just pour it in our own bowls? Like, we do that very cleanly in America and then we pull out our little wet wipes, you know, and our little zippered hand sanitizer thing. They didn't do that back then, right? They, they, like, back in those days, if you ate with a tax collector or a sinner, you were eating with the lowest. So religious elite, people who thought highly of themselves, they would never eat with a tax collector or a sinner, right? I mean, could you imagine a Broncos fan and Chiefs fan eating dinner together? I mean, I can, but you guys might not be able to. But so in, who you eat with is, reveals who you are. And so with Jesus eating, there's a oneness. What you think about this? Pay attention to who you eat with this month. There's a oneness with who you eat with. Jesus was eating with the people that were despised in culture. And that tells us something about Jesus that the the Pharisees didn't get, but that the tax collectors and the, the people who recognized they needed a Savior did. And that's this, that Jesus loves sinful people. Jesus loves lost people. The tax collectors and the sinners, they knew they were lost. They knew they were a mess. They knew they couldn't walk into the synagogue, but there was something about Jesus that drew them to him. And they knew that Jesus loved lost people, and they recognized that they were lost. They recognized there was something missing in their hearts, whereas the Pharisees didn't. And so Jesus loves lost people. And, and, and I have, to, I have to, to say, you know, when we think about, you know, Vision Sunday, who are we as a church? Our heart has to be the same. Our heart has to be the exact same. And here at the forefront, this is why you can walk in and you'll see people from all walks of life. You'll see people who look differently than each other. You'll see people with good hair and no hair, right? You'll see people who wear suits and people who wear flip-flops. I mean, it just, I think the idea is that we want to be a place where people who know that there's something missing in their hearts can find the answer to that and they don't have to hop over a bunch of hurdles. Like we were talking the other day, like let's just get out of Jesus' way, Right, and create an environment where people can come, get to know, and get to hear about Jesus. And that's this idea that with Jesus, everybody was welcome. Like with the Pharisees, like if you were a tax collector or you were a drunker or you didn't go to synagogue regularly and pay your money, then you weren't welcome with them. But not with Jesus, everybody was welcome. And that's why we want to say here at forefront, everybody is welcome. Turn to your neighbor, and say, everybody is welcome. This side did way better than this side did, by, just, by, just so you guys know. But like the idea is everybody's welcome. But here, here is the interesting thing. You'll see this a lot in our culture. You'll see a lot of churches with banners. Everybody is welcome. And this is the church should be. Where else can people hear about Jesus? This needs to be the place where we don't put any requirements on people to come in the door. That we want you guys to come in. and want you to learn about Jesus because Jesus is the hope of the world. I 100% unequivocally believe that. And so if we stop somebody from coming in the door because they don't look like us, they don't dress like us, they, do, they live differently than us, then where else are they going to hear it? But here's the thing I want you to notice about Jesus. While Jesus says everybody was welcome, Jesus didn't say everything is good. Jesus clearly called people to repentance and confession and to obedience. Jesus would say everybody was welcome, but he, you know, remember the woman that gets brought to Jesus who's getting caught in the act of adultery? What does Jesus say to her after he says, He who has never sinned, cast the first stone, everybody leaves? Jesus tells her to stand up and he doesn't say, Hell, go back and live your life however you want. What does he say? Go and sin no more. Jesus calls us to him. He welcomes us, but then he says, After you may have a relationship with me, and after you see that my way is the truth and the life and the way then you see it, it changes you. It forces you to live differently. So that's why we'll say at Forefront, we're a welcoming church, but we're not an affirming church because we're not gonna affirm things that are outside of the Bible. We're gonna stand and say, Jesus tells us what's best for our lives and we're gonna walk together. We're never gonna send anybody away because they lived outside of what the Bible would say because we're all on that journey, amen? We're all in process. Like we're all trying to figure it out, but we're gonna go do it together and we're gonna encourage each other together. And we're going to cheer each other on together. Does that make sense, Forefront? Like this is why this church needs to be different than a church out there that's turning people away. We want people coming in and hearing the life-changing news about Jesus. And that will end up changing their lives. It's not the guilt trip we put on people that changes their lives. It's the Holy Spirit that changes lives. And so we want to be a place where people hear the truth. The people that, a place that loves lost people. And a place that loves Jesus. And so this is what we see with Jesus here. And so he's standing here with the the Pharisees and the the scribes and the religious leaders, and the religious leaders are all pointing their fingers at Jesus, saying, Jesus, you are uh, just a bum because you're eating with these guys. And so Jesus tells them a parable. This is the first one. It's the parable of the lost sheep. Notice Luke chapter 15, verse three. So Jesus, so he told them this parable. "What what, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And so, simple idea, right? Like, hey, you're, you're a rancher, you're a shepherd, and you've got a you hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. What are you going to do? And he's asking this to this group of religious people who thought that they were better than shepherds. You know, shepherds were kind of looked down on in that culture. So, again, he's kind of pointing at their pride a little bit. But he's saying, imagine that you're a, a rancher and you have a hundred of an animal and one goes astray. What are you going to do? Of course you're going to go looking for it. So he's appealing to our sense of care, right? Now, it's interesting, one of the, the most favorite pictures that Jesus and, and the, 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 but the biblical writer authors use for, for us is sheep. Now, how many of you love being called a sheep, right? Like, in our culture, this is like, ah, oh, we're lions, not sheep, right? Like, but the reality is the Bible refers to us as sheep because we are a lot like sheep. Now, we think of sheep and we're like, well, we think of these cute little cuddly sheep, right, that you give like a little bottle of milk to, you know, at the cute little petting farm. But like, you know, if you lived in first century Jerusalem, like, these sheep were just part of life, right? There was meat, it was wool, you know, it all kinds of stuff. And so um, sheep were really a big part. And so you would see just flocks of sheep all over the place. Now, sheep, if you guys don't know this guy's, and I'm not, I don't, this isn't me saying this, this is the Bible saying this. Sheep are really stupid, right? You know, there's like that scene for, Mish, for Men in Black One when Will Smith tells Tommy Lee Jones, he's like, well, how are you guys covering up this whole alien thing? Because people are smart. And Tommy Lee Jones says, people, are, a person is smart, but people, they're stupid, right? Sheep aren't very smart. As people, we're not the smartest either because we tend to get drift off in our own way all the time. See, there's one thing a sheep thinks about. And that's green pasture. All a sheep thinks about is eating. It's like my bulldog at home. I mean, all day long, he's like the Roomba, right? You know, it just like doesn't matter what it is. It can be like a sock or a piece of cotton. He's going to eat it, right? He's going to chew on the leg of the table, thinking it's rawhide. Sheep would just wander off. That's why the shepherd is always trying to keep the sheep together. Because the sheep would wander off. It would walk itself to a top of a cliff and get stuck. And it can't get down. How often don't we do that too, right? How often, all we want is, I mean, it may not be green pastures, but it's whatever your green pasture is. And we have a really good ch- a way of getting ourselves stuck on a, on a top of a little cliff where we can't get down. And that's why we need the good shepherd. And so Jesus says, hey, you guys are a lot like sheep because it's so easy that you go astray. And that's why we need to hear his voice. And that's why Jesus says in, in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. So there's this picture here that Jesus gives us of these lost sheep, and that Jesus is coming to, to rescue these lost sheep. Now notice what Jesus does here. Okay, so he paints this picture now, and he, he leans into the religious leaders again in verse 4. he says, so what, what man or woman of you would have 100 sheep, have lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country to go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And he's, again, he's getting at that hard attitude. What parent in this room, if you had a child walk away, would not go and seek after your child? What teacher in this room, if you had a student who hasn't shown up to school for a month, would it call that family and check in on that kid? Like he's appealing to this inner sense of care that God has given us as part of this, the law of right and wrong that is on our hearts. And he's saying the shepherd would leave the 99. And you would leave and you would go and you would find that one. And then what would happen? Notice what it says in verse 5. And then when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Again, the shepherd imagery. Again, see Jesus doing this. He lays it on his shoulders, and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says, Rejoice with me, for I had found my sheep that was lost. And he's saying, he's given us a picture of God's heart. He said, Imagine your heavenly father when one of his people ha- has been lost. When somebody that he created, that he loves is lost, isn't he going to go, and isn't he going to find him, and isn't he going to seek after him, and when he finds him, isn't he going to rejoice? How many of you have ever, this could be a hard hard topic, but however you have ever lost a dog and then found it? It's, some of us have lost dogs and not found them. That's really hard. That's really hard. But if you've lost a dog and you find it, like there's something that goes, that stirs up in you, Right? Like we had our bulldog got out a couple years ago and our neighbor, he didn't know us yet. He immediately just gripped him up and took him to the shelter. And so it was really hard. Like we, Courtney was knocking on doors. Like we were upset. When we found him, we were just ecstatic. Like your heart just leaps because you found what was lost, right? You guys been there? Like it's, you know? And And so this is what, this is the picture that Jesus is giving us of our heavenly father and of Jesus. And it's this, that Jesus' heart It's to find those who are lost. Like this is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. He said, you guys don't get it. You guys are all about your rule keeping and looking good on the outside. But what my heavenly father has done is he sent me here because I have a heart to find what is lost. And I'm gonna go. And the 99 who are doing okay, I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna go find the one. Because the 99 don't realize that they were actually already lost. Back in, in Mark chapter two, we see Jesus call Matthew. What was Matthew? Also a tax collector. And so Jesus calls Matthew. He walks up to the tax booth and he looks at Matthew and he says, Matthew, follow me. And he gets up and leaves and does. Now, chances are Matthew had been hearing about Jesus. He had seen Jesus. He had seen Jesus do these miracles. And so now Matthew, he, he just didn't just blindly follow Jesus. He's like, "This is something special about this guy. So he gets up and he, he follows Jesus. And Matthew throws a party at his house. And again, they're eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so the Pharisees, they gather around outside, and they start to to really criticize Jesus again for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And notice what Jesus says to them. He looks and he says this. He says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to sinners, but to call sinners. Jesus is like, look, we you think about the 99, they don't, they, don't, they don't need a doctor. It's the one who's, who's lost, who's sick, who's gone astray. That's the one that Jesus has a heart to come after. And I want you to think of Jesus' life. Like, I encourage you this year, spend some time in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read them over and over again. And what you're going to see in Jesus' life is that Jesus went from town to town. He rode in a boat across the Sea of Galilee, back and forth. Why didn't he just stay in one place? Well, they didn't have social media and news outlets and Instagram like Pastor Kev has, right? They had, like back then you had to go and to talk. And so Jesus would be out, and he would talk about the kingdom of God here, and then he'd go across the lake and talk about the kingdom of God here, and then he'd walk to Jerusalem, and he talked about the kingdom of God there. He was continually getting the word out, spreading the word, so more people knew something is going on. The kingdom of God is close. He had 12 disciples that he taught every single day. He had a group of 70 that he would send out to talk about the kingdom of God in towns. Why? So he could get people stirring he could get the people thinking, so he could get the people coming to see him and to hear him, so they could hear what is going on. He was on this mission to save. And here's one thing I want to say about this as a church. If all we do, guys, is gather here on Sunday mornings, which is so important. Don't get me wrong. This gathering on Sunday morning is so important because we're encouraged. We open God's word together and we dive deep. We put application into our lives on how it impacts us. Uh, We walk away feeling uh, maybe our toes stepped on, but also feeling joyful and connected to God. This is so important. But if all we do is keep that to ourselves, then how are anybody outside the walls of this church going to hear about Jesus and what he's doing in my life? If all Jesus did was stay in Capernaum and preach the whole time to the same group, then how many people wouldn't have heard? How many people wouldn't have been saved? How many people would not have been able to be a part of what Jesus was building before he went to the cross? Like, for you and me, we have to be able to take what God is doing in here and take it out there. Does that make sense, guys? Because God has done something in your life and in your life and in my life, and if we just keep it here and we just talk with our two friends about how good God is, how many people are not getting to hear that are lost about what Jesus is doing? Because, yeah, a lot of people have heard the name Jesus, but very few know the true stories about Jesus. and Very few people know what he's really all about. And I think that's one of the things that God wants us to do as a church, to be people who get outside of just this little circle of people who look like us and act like us and talk like us, but get around people who don't, who can hear who Jesus is and why he came. And so I think it's a question, guys, if Jesus has a heart for the lost, shouldn't we too? It doesn't come natural, though. This is something that we have to ask God to build and bring through us. You can't sit and wait till well, one day. I'm, gonna have, I'm just gonna sit here until God gives me a heart for the loss. Never gonna get it. It's not until you engage in it and you step out in it and you get a little more uncomfortable. Now, last week, we took a group. We've got a group. We call it the For the Park group. We go out and we actually pass out cookies and talk to our neighbors, just letting them know we're here and that we love them. And we had a couple people go last week who've never been before. And they, they wouldn't tell you this, but they were scared. I could see couple of them are doing this, you know. Like, <laughs> But I tell you, by the end of it, I mean, they were just on fire. Fired up, weren't they? They were just excited because they got to talk to people and about church and Jesus and invite people and connect with neighbors, and it does something inside of you. But you're never going to like going out and being bold and brave until you do it. Just the way it works. And so Jesus sends his people out, and Jesus wants to send us out too. And so he gives us these parables. Notice there's another parable too. Notice this. This, uh, this parable is starting in verse 8. It's the parable of the lost coin. And I want to just kind of talk about them together because they're, they're very similar. Notice this one. He says this, or what woman having a 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. okay, so here's the picture. just like the shepherd has the sheep that got lost this 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 uh, this woman had lost a coin. Now this wasn't any coin. it wasn't anybody got a coin in her hand in their pocket. None of you carry cash anymore. You guys are all just using venmo. but just imagine it's not one of those kind of coins, right? This was a different kind of coin. Here's a picture. so in in Jewish culture. What you would have is a, when you got married, the uh, bride would be giving a, uh, these 10 coins, very beautiful headdress. And so this would be a wedding gift. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you, sometimes you can see these sorts of things. Uh, beautiful headdress, 10 very valuable coins. But the, it wasn't that the, the coin itself was worth a whole lot of money itself. It was the meaning of the coin. This was the glory of the bride. She was given it. It's like your wedding ring. Ladies, hold your wedding ring up if you're wearing it right now. Like imagine losing your wedding ring, right? You're gonna go you're look for it. You know, unless you got one of these rubber things that Courtney gives me a hard time about all the time. But it's really easy to lift weights in these, by the way. But it's not very pretty. These would have been beautiful, right? And so she lost one of the ten. And just like if you lost the wedding ring, what are you gonna do? You're gonna look for it. So she sweeps her house. This is back in the day when they didn't have fluorescent lights. So she's got her cell phone camera out, right? She's like looking for it under the table. But, you know, she, she's got her little oil lamp and she's sweeping and, and she finds it. But she's, this is something valuable to her. This is something that, that if she would have lost it for good, it would have tore her up. See, if you lose something that's cheap, what do you care? You lose like a wristband that costs you a dollar, who cares, right? You might look for it for a couple minutes and then you don't care. But if you lose something valuable something happens inside of you, right? Like you get that feeling in your stomach and you just can't stop searching until you find it. Like I remember one time in high school, I lost my keys to my car. When you're in high school, what's your car? Right, it's like everything. I had one key. I mean, I I was gonna search until I found that thing. I called my grandma, I said, grandma, pray for me that I find my car keys. I literally walk into the bathroom, open up the cabinet underneath, pull everything out and guess where my keys are? under the sink. I was pretty sure it was my sister. She she probably threw it in there, right? But but still, you lose something, you have to search until you find it. And so I want you to notice this. Jesus sees everybody as valuable and worthy of searching for. This is what we see here in these parables that Jesus is saying that everybody is valuable. That coin by itself probably wasn't that valuable, but it was valuable to the bride because it represented her wedding and the gift her husband gave her. And Jesus is saying that everybody is worthy, that everybody is valuable and worthy of searching for. And you might say, why is that? Because I think sometimes we as a church, we as Christians, especially in the West, we value, our value system can be different if we're not careful. Our value system can be people that look like they have it together. That's what the Pharisees wanted. The Pharisees wanted people that looked like they had it together, people that went to the synagogue, people that practiced the rules, people that gave money. And as Christians and followers of Jesus, we can get pretty comfortable looking for people who look like us. But Jesus came to save the lost and seek after those who were far from God because everybody is valuable. Why? Because Jesus created them. Every one of you are valuable because Jesus has created you in the image of God. Every one of you are image bearers of your heavenly father. And that makes you valuable. And that makes you worthy. And that makes your life meaningful. And that means that Jesus loves you. And that means that we should love one another just like Jesus loved us. Sin has broken this world. And brokenness lives in all of us. We all say stupid stuff and make bad decisions and hurt people and do selfish things. But Jesus came for us when we were unlovely and lost. And Jesus wants us as the church to be the people that go after the ones that don't seem very lovely to us, but we know they're lovely to Jesus. Amen, guys? This is the mission that Jesus was on, and this is what Jesus is calling us to do too. I love John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that so whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life beautiful, the mission of Jesus, that God loves us so much. He sent Jesus here for us, and that when we put our faith in Jesus, we have life, everlasting life. But that doesn't start someday when we we die. That starts the day we say yes to Jesus, that Jesus gives us the ability to overcome sin and the ability to, to say no to things that we used to say yes to. But I love verse 17. Don't miss verse 17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. John goes on later to say that Jesus doesn't condemn the world because it's already condemned. See, churches are really good. Christians can be really good at condemning because somebody doesn't live like we think they should. Well, a non-believer doesn't live like the Bible says they should. Yeah, no kidding, right? Like if you you can't expect somebody who doesn't know Jesus to live like Jesus would tell them to live, Yet we look at society and we're like, oh man, society is such a train wreck disaster. Of course it is. Because society's already condemned. Just look at the world. It's full of earthquakes and it's full of hurricanes and it's full of people killing each other and it's full of ter- people robbing each other and people defrauding each other. Like Jesus didn't need to come condemn the world because the world's already condemned. But you know what Jesus came to do? Save the world. He came to seek and save the world. That's why every one of us needs to know Jesus. And it's not just because we go to church or because our parents are Christians. It's because each and every one of you have said yes to Jesus. Because otherwise, like, that's the only way we can truly find our humanity and the perfect version of ourselves is by trusting in what He did for us on the cross. And when He rose from the grave, He defeated the power that death and sin have on us. And we're still going to be messes, but we're a lot less messy especially until you get to the back row over here, and then life is looking pretty good, right? I love you guys back there. You guys are the best. But the reality is that Jesus welcomed the unlovely. Because here's the, re- here's the reality, guys. You can't save what you don't get close to, right? You want to save your fish? You got to get close to your fish. You want to save somebody who needs to know Jesus? You got to get close to them. Jesus got close to the world, to get close to those who needed him. And I wonder, what about us? Because it can be really easy to say the right things and go through the right motions, but are we getting close to people who are lost and far from Jesus? Are we close enough to those who Jesus wants us to find? Because what Jesus wants is not us to be a part of an institution or act or put on a front. What Jesus wants is your heart. And Jesus wants you to have the same heart that he has. So, for, so Forefront, notice this. When Jesus seeks and finds the lost, he, he is going to bring them into this, into this church. This is the Jesus' bride, the church, and for us to care for them, to love them, to build them up, to, to help show them the way that Jesus calls us to live and to do it together in community. And this is why we can't be lone wolf Christians trying to do it on our own. Like, we've got to be part of a family. We've got to be part of a group of believers who are like-minded because it's on mission together that we can make the most impact. And this is why Jesus created the church. Now, I want you to notice what happens. Notice this. As Jesus brings people and finds the lost, what happens? Notice this. It says that they rejoice. Look at this. This is really good. Look back at verse 7, talking about the shepherd again. This is really good. So he says this. He says, Jesus says, just so I tell you, he's talking to the Pharisees, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then when he talks about the valuable coin in verse 10, he says this. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now notice that. Jesus says, in both cases, the shepherd and the, and the married woman, when they find what they lost, what do they do? They rejoice. They call their friends. They put out an Instagram post. You won't believe I found it. I'm so excited. It, it's been, it was lost, but now it's found. And Jesus says, in heaven when one soul who is lost says yes to Jesus heaven rejoices heaven parties heaven it's why when you come to baptism Sunday here what do we do it's a party because we're celebrating what God has done and right now we're seeing this beautiful picture that heaven rejoices when the lost are found i mean isn't that amazing like the day you said yes to Jesus like the angels in heaven like rejoiced and we don't even know what that would look like, right? Like they were popping bottles or blowing gazoos or something, but they were celebrating. When your kid, when you had that conversation with your son or your daughter or your grandkid or your niece or your nephew, and they said, I want to say yes to Jesus, and they said yes right then, and your heart leapt. You know who else's heart leapt? Your heavenly father's heart leapt. And so Jesus says that when somebody puts their faith in Jesus, it's a party and they celebrate. But I want you to notice something. Notice the word that Jesus uses in verses 7 and 10. It starts with an R. Did you guys catch it? What was it? Repent. Jesus, notice this word in both places. It's repent. Jesus says when somebody r- repents, what does that mean? If you're, You young guys, listen up. This is good. You guys need to hear this. Repent means turn and change your mind. The idea of like repentance means like, I changed my mind. Like so, what Jesus is saying is someone who thought that their way was right, somebody thought who they knew what was best for them, somebody who thought that they could make the decisions for them, somebody who like Adam and Eve in the very beginning wanted to make their choice of what was right and wrong. That person realizes, well, that was not right. Jesus, instead, I'm going to trust that your way is right. So when we repent, it's not some mystical, magical thing. We're literally saying, God, I thought my way was right. It wasn't, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me of that? God, I'm going to turn and trust that your way is right, and I'm going to believe and follow. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to fall down all the time. But the key is we get back up because we know and we trust that God's way is right. Rather, when we mess up on our side, we get all depressed and shameful and guilty, don't we? When we follow Jesus, we mess up we get right back up because we know we're forgiven. Isn't that beautiful, by the way? And so Jesus says, when you repent, and you follow me, You meaning you change your mind and you trust that my way is right, and you're standing on the truth that I am the son of God who died for your sins and rose from the grave, that means you get saved and the angels in heaven rejoice. And your heavenly father jumps up and down and high fives everybody because one lost soul has now found its way back to the family of God. And I think there's a reality here, guys, that I want us to just to check ourselves. And when we talk to people and when we share our faith, this repentance is a big thing. Some people spend their whole life going to church trying to find God, and they feel like they can never find him. And it's because they've never repented of trying to do it their own way. When we and I say repentance is simple, it's not easy, but when we simply repent and trust and believe that God's way is what's best for us, it's then that The Lord changes and shapes us from the inside out. So to follow Jesus means you have to repent and believe. Acts 2, Peter tells the crowd, Jesus is the son of God. The crowd says, what do we need to do? Peter says, repent and believe and then get baptized. Repentance is the key to what God's doing in your heart. Remember this, guys. God doesn't want your behavior. God wants your heart. God wants your belief. You don't need to belong. You need to believe. You don't need to behave to belong. You just need to believe, and it's beautiful. So this is what Jesus is saying in these parables, that he came to save what was lost, and he's calling you and I to play a part in this. It's a beautiful reality. How many of you this week have heard about the uh, the uh, Asbury revival going on in Kentucky? Some of you have seen this on Facebook or maybe on the news. Here's a picture. In Kentucky right now, at Asbury College, it's a Christian college in Kentucky, there is what we're seeing is a revival happening. College kids are going together and they're praying and they're worshiping, and there's, there's no like crazy popular celebrity pastors, nothing. It's these college kids coming together. It's been going on for a couple of weeks now. Every day, the church is packed. It's interesting, it's starting to sprout up in other college campuses around America too. This revival is starting to take place. And I've had people ask, well, is it real? Is this a real revival? And we have to just pray and trust that God, God's in it, right? We, we don't know. We have to trust that, that God's behind it because any true revival starts with prayer and it starts with coming together and humbling ourselves at the feet of God. And so I trust that these revivals are God moving. You know, it's, it's really interesting. If you look back over history, you see that this is one of the ways that God sparks hearts is through revival. Some of you have heard of the Great Awakening, Happened in the 1720s through the 1740s. Well, what had happened in the Great Awakening, similar to our day today, is people had moved from, from uh, England to the U.S. to escape religious persecution. They get here, and all of a sudden, they have land. They have crops. Life is good. They start to build a little wealth. What do they do? Same thing we do. Get comfy. Take our eyes off of God. Stop trusting in God for everything we need. What happened was, so in the early 1700s, everybody who fled Eng- England to try to go worship at the church they wanted to worship at just stopped going to church because things were good. And so God started to spark hearts. There began to be a movement of younger people. It usually starts with you, you young guys, I'm telling you. You guys, are, it starts with you. And they, young people, just started praying, fervently started praying. And then the rest of the churches started to come together. They started praying. And you began to see this movement of people who were prayerfully asking God to move, God to invite people um, to, to save the lost. They started going out and inviting people into their churches, and their churches started seeing people saved. So this is a picture of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was, was uh, the preacher at a little bitty Northampton, Massachusetts village, uh, but became one of, uh, you know, one of the most popular preachers of all time. Jonathan Edwards saw in his little church 300 people get saved in six months. God was moving and it started with prayer and it started with people buying into the vision of what they were called to do, to not be people who just keep it to ourselves, but to be people who take the message of Jesus and what God has done in our life and to take it out there. And we see that the great awakening from 1720 to 1740, thousands of people got saved and then 100 years later, there was another great awakening, awakening and thousands of more people got saved. And then there was a third great awakening in the, 19, in the 20th century. And could God be doing it again right now? See, it's not up to us. It's up to God. But God calls each of us to play our part. So here's where I want us to land on this forefront. What is God calling us to do? You know, we call this Vision Sunday And we want to ask that question, what is God's call and mission for us as a church and for you as individual Christians and followers of Jesus? And I think it's this, is God wants us to have the same heart that Jesus has. And so God wants us to be on this same mission together, to realize that he wants us to seek after the one, the one that was lost. And so you see these shirts that we're wearing. We gave these out to everybody who serves on one of our dream team teams, one of our serve teams. And this is, this is the, the, the statement that God has put on our hearts this year is for the one. Now, there's a double meaning here. We're for the one. But we're also for the one. Meaning that each and every one of you have one person in your life that God has, has put you in contact with. Maybe it's your neighbor or it's your sister or it's the person down the street or the guy in the cubicle next year or the dude that awkwardly takes the sauna with you at the gym, right? Like, God wants... You'd invest, and we believe this is the call that God has given us, for each of us to invest in one. Now, that's scary. How many of you, that sounds scary to? It sounds scary to me, too. But I realize it's scary for all of us. But what, what God wants us to do is to find that one person. And we believe this here at Forefront. This year, who's the one person that you can invest in? And you become, become friends with. And that you can invite over to have dinner. Remember, there's oneness in who you eat with. And then you can invite to church, or you could go pick up their groceries. Or you could do something nice for them. And to build a relationship to a point where you can, at some point, invite them to church or to say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? So that, that's my prayer for you guys. is Who's the one? Like, if you put all of your effort that you spend doing something mindless, like we all do it, right? Like, if I stopped looking at ESPN.com, right, I look at it probably like, 53 times a day, just to see if there's any news, right? What's that, 10 minutes a day? If I took 10 minutes out of my day to stop looking at ESPN.com and started using that 10 minutes to invite somebody over for coffee, how could God use that wasted energy to do something for the kingdom? So, forfeit, I want you to ask your question, who's your one? Like, this year, who's gonna be the one that you invest in? Every single one of you have someone in your life that God wants you to invest in. And if it's scary, good, because Jesus wants you to step out of your comfort zone just a little bit so you can learn to trust him. Ron talked earlier about our 40 days of prayer and fasting. When the revival started in in the Great Awakening, you know how it started? With prayer. Movements of God always start with prayer. And so if we're throwing up little 30-second prayers, God, help me get to work on time, that might not do it. I think what God wants us to do is to be a church that prays. And so here's my challenge is on on the tables on your way back, if you want a paper prayer guide for the next 40 days, grab one. If not, we're going to email it out. It's on our website. And I invite you guys starting March 1st to pray with us. And let your prayer be, God, who's my one? And how can I reach this one for you? We're also going to restart prayer nights to be on Sunday nights once a month. And so watch for that because I want to challenge all of us to come together over this, next, over this next 40 days leading to Easter and let's pray. Let's pray and let's keep that going. Let's pray for God to move revival in our hearts and revival in our cities and revival in my life so I can go reach the one that God has put in my life. Forefront, God has invited us to be part of the greatest story ever told. And can you imagine what this city would look like If we all join together for the one on mission together, it would be so beautiful. So let's do it. Let's be Jesus' people. Let's change the world for Jesus. Amen? Would you pray with me?